two or three weeks ago in my sermon, I talked about uh, the prayer that is the presider prays at the beginning of each Eucharist. It's called the collect, and it comes from a Latin word collecta, which means to gather sort of the disparate prayers of the assembly into one thematic whole. And so today we pray. I should have looked it up in the concordance of the prayer book. This sounds like a prayer that Cranmer may have written, although it could come from another, from another source. Lord, we pray that thy grace may always proceed and follow us and make us continually given to all good works. So the petition is to ask God's grace to precede us and to follow us, one or the other. I don't know which comes first, precede or follow. And the two readings, two of the readings from 2 Timothy and from the gospel are about God's grace and the way in which God's grace operates. 2 Timothy may, as I preach about it, reveal itself to be about God's grace in the midst of adversity and how it's present and operates. And the other reading from the gospel, the healing of the ten lepers, is about the natural human consequence of the presence of God's grace, which is the ability to express gratitude for the benefits that we have received. I'll just say to you personally over the last ten days, uh, I'm very grateful to live in the age of, modern, of medicine in the era that we're in now. In spite of all of the criticisms, I'd rather be here than in 1928. <laughs> Take my word for it. So being grateful is part of a mature spirituality and how we understand it flowing from the grace of God, God uh, coming from within to enlighten and strengthen us. I've mentioned this before that the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Jude, which we hardly ever read from, it's quite a short epistle, uh, are considered by most biblical scholars now to be deuteropauline, which means that they were written by a disciple or disciples of Paul. However, Paul is uh, ascribed as the author in the New Testament of these epistles, and it's entirely possible that 2 Timothy is Pauline, and so some believe that in the formation of the canon, you know, the books that we have in the order that we have them uh, could be the result of 2 Timothy being believed in the great tradition as Pauline, but 1 Timothy and Jude sort of got in on the coattails in some ways. Doesn't matter on one level, but on another level it does because it sure shows a maturing of Paul's thought in an age that has, has demonstrated change in the common life of the church. These are called the pastoral epistles because they're advice to pastors. They're advice to pastors about the oversight of churches, the issues of Christian living, of doctrine and leadership. And so Paul today in 2 Timothy is speaking about um, how you uh, maintain grace under fire how you stay strong in the midst of suffering and adversity, not necessarily physical suffering, although he explains today that he's in prison and that he is uh, chained in, in prison. And he has suffered beatings and physical 
suffering, but he's also suffered a lot of emotional difficulty. Uh, all of you who are in positions of leadership have had to do this. All of you know what it's like to uh, remain strong in the teeth of adversity, the reactivity of other people, being discounted, um, all sorts of things, which in some ways this is about. So Paul is saying today, although God's grace, as it says in the Collect, may precede and follow us, it does not promise a smooth road. Positions of leadership often do not. And so in some ways, uh, it's important for us to understand what it means. At the end of the reading, he has a sort of, he reproduces an ancient liturgical hymn. And he goes, if we do this, this is happens, God's this, we do this, God does that, we do that, and so forth. But the best line in the whole thing is at the end, which sort of cancels all the other uh, things, in my opinion, and that is, uh, if we are faithless, God remains faithful. If we are faithless, God remains faithful. So I got to thinking about this in terms of the importance of grace's presence in the, in the midst of adversity and the encouragement it gives us to understand its power. I thought I'd look up uh, when I, st- I this sermon this week is a little erratic, and I thought, well, I'll look up in the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church a definition of God's grace. And it says, the supernatural assistance of God bestowed upon a rational being with a view to his or her sanctification. Well, good. (laughs) So I prefer the catechism in the Book of Common Prayer. Grace is God's favor towards us, unearned and undeserved. By grace, God forgives our sins, enlightens our minds, stirs our hearts, and strengthens our wills. So that's a better way to understand maybe the presence of God's grace uh, in our lives. But I also got to thinking about the public discourse in this country over the last month or so, and wondering how we make a distinction between um, ideology and principle. Because Paul is speaking about the importance of sticking to your principles. You know? So that could be said on one level about any position you wish to take. But in some way, when we talk about the pastoral epistles in the Bible, Paul and others in that section of the, of the epistolary writings of the New Testament are concerned with the issue of dealing with the pastoral experience of the church which has now become nearly a generation old. So what do we do with the principles and the converted sense that we wish to maintain, the desire to maintain the prophetic edge in our common life together, and the the necessity to use reason and common sense with regard to a lot of the things in, in, in our public life together? And, you know, somebody characterized this week as a situation where the leaders of the United States Congress have set the house on fire and then decided to run into the house and take various pieces of furniture out that they wanted to save. You know? 
in the recovery movement, they speak of, well, it's like a decision to redecorate your house while it's on fire. Right? All for your ideological commitments. Uh, I don't know whether that's God's grace proceeding and following us or not, or whether we ought to be too prideful about uh, taking stands with regard to uh, being people of principle. You know, it's important for us uh, in some ways to understand what it means and what Paul means. And by necessity, he had to deal even in his own circumstances and his apostleship uh, with pushback. And so did the church in Jerusalem who wanted, who wanted to figure out what in the world were they going to do with this guy out there that they didn't know and they didn't believe was one of them. And so we see that the smooth over comes in the book of Acts when Paul goes to Jerusalem and they have a council and Luke writes that it all got patched up in some way. And I believe it did, actually. That's how it worked. In Luke's gospel today, we have the story of the healing of the ten lepers. And you need to look at this reading from a couple of vantages, certainly from Luke's perspective, who uh, took this parable down uh, in its form. But you also need to look at it from the standpoint of who the players are in this thing. Ten lepers, uh, the most outcast people probably in the ancient Near East. Leprosy was, they did not have, by the way, Hansen's disease, which is what leprosy is. You know, Father Damien and Hawaii and so forth. They had some form of scrofulous skin disease or skin ailment, which could have been a variety of things that was all lumped under the category of leprosy. So they warn Jesus, he's going between Samaria and uh, Judea, and he's walking through and he encounters ten lepers. And they call to him at a distance and they plead with him to heal them. And Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priests. Be obedient to the ways and the, the, the customs of the present age. And on their way, in obedience to what he tells them to do, they realize they've been healed. This is typical of the healing stories in, in the Gospels, particularly in Luke, because somehow there's uh, the implication that Luke has, a physician, that we all participate in our own healing, right? It's not something that's just done externally. It's something that we have to uh, cooperate with in big and small ways, you know. Take your medicine, do what you're supposed to do, in addition to having uh, some uh, work done that will help affect this. So they all experience healing. One person comes back and kneels down before Jesus and thanks him for being healed. And Jesus says, if you read it in the... T he doesn't say this in a way of extreme rebuke, but he just asks the question, we're not ten people healed. How come only one has come back to give thanks? 
I used to hear pastors, I've even said it myself, in a somewhat curmudgeonly way say uh, something that is true about uh, the ministry. And that is for every 10 people that ask me to pray for them or somebody in their family who has something, maybe one person will ask to give thanks for something that has happened that's positive in their life or that actually healing has been affected or there's been some transformation of thinking or relating in some way. Most of the time we all ask God for stuff because that's what we expect petitionary prayer about is about God as the great wish granter in the sky. And so Jesus asked this question and uh, he speaks about this. And then Luke surprises us and says at the end that the person who came back to give thanks was a Samaritan. Ethne. Those people. A stranger. Uh, this is particularly sharpened because there's something underneath this, and that is Luke is ethne. He's a Gentile. He's not a member of the people of the covenant. And he believes that Jesus' messianic statement here, we're not ten cleansed, is an unconditional healing that takes place for everybody, whether they give thanks or no. And that's true for each of us. We don't have to. The healing that is given to us is unconditional because God's love, forgiveness, and acceptance is unconditional. Right? So you won't be punished for being thankful, not being thankful. But it's in, the, it's in, this, uh, in Luke's gospel because it's about the necessity of seeing that gratitude is a necessary component of a mature spirituality. And the growing in gratitude is, is something that's important. Albert Schweitzer, who is famous. My father was a church organist, not as his main job. But, and I remember as a little boy, I used to, he had a whole lot of records. And I m remember that I listened to Albert Schweitzer play all of Bach's organ works. He had a, a collection of records Schweitzer was a Renaissance man. He could play the organ. He was a New Testament scholar. He wrote the, the Life of Jesus in about 1905, which was a changing. And then he became a doctor and went over to Gabon in Africa and ran a medical clinic for the rest of his life. He said his mother used to pray with him when he was a little boy in his bedroom. She'd come in, give him a kiss goodnight. And... Uh, he began to say after his mother they said these prayers, he began to get, as a kid to think about animal suffering. And he began to see that he needed in his own prayer an outlook to express gratitude for all living things. So when his mom finished praying with him, uh, he would add this silent prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, protect and bless all things that have breath. Guard them from all evil and let them sleep in peace. So he said that to himself. And he certainly reflected in his own life a generosity of spirit and of substance. I've said this a number of times. About 10 years ago or more, Bill Moyers had a series with Houston Smith, the great uh, world expert on the great faith traditions. 
And in one of the episodes, uh, Bill Moyers said, how would you know, Houston, if uh, you were making any spiritual progress at all in your life? And he said, all of the great faith traditions, without exception, report that as they mature spiritually, they notice in themselves an increase in generosity, an increase in the generous impulse, which he says, and I believe too, is a natural human trait. And it's buried inside for a variety of reasons. And as we mature in the spirit, it's allowed now to to come up and be present to us uh, instinctively. The generous impulse. He said all the great faith traditions, the great masters of these traditions, always report that that is an outcome of their maturing in the spirit. Anybody who, any form of personal insight, any form of spiritual enlightenment, any way in which people wish to attach progress that is not accompanied by this is bogus. It's bogus. He's, and it's pretty strong for somebody who's fairly mild-mannered in the way in which he reports this. So Jesus is speaking about a mature uh, spirituality when he speaks about gratitude. But he's also saying something about who Jesus was and what the purpose of his ministry is. And that is that he is the Messiah of God and that he has come to demonstrate that in continuity with the sacred literature of the Hebrew people, the saving message of Jesus Christ is not just for the people of the covenant, but it is for everyone, including ethne, those people of which he is one. So I guess the assignment this week would be to uh, look for the signs, and you all have them, in your life where you have uh, found it easier to express the generous impulse. Know that God's grace is always proceeding and following you. Uh, It doesn't uh, promise a smooth road, but it uh, demonstrates that uh, it's God's favor freely given without regard to our own personal merit. And it's something that never goes away. Even if we are faithless, God remains faithful. Amen.